So in the open source world, you're not buying the code, right? Because the code is out there, it's available. And some people will say, well, then why buy the company? You can just fork the code and do whatever you want. So if you're not buying the intellectual property, then what are you buying? Well, you are often buying a team and that team can do incredible things. Welcome to The Open Source Economist, a podcast about the new economy of free software powering our lives. Brought to you by Christy Chirinos, product manager and entrepreneur. Yeah, so I'm Zach Terrell. I am the general manager of the events calendar. I've been in some form of that role for the past I guess this is my sixth year uh, running the the show over at the events calendar. And what's and, the events uh, calendar? Yeah, so the events calendar is the the number one calendar platform uh, for WordPress. And while I was working at Liquid Web, Liquid Web acquired the events calendar. And in this episode about open source acquisition, we do talk to Chris Lama, who I believe led that charge. Is that true? So Chris was very involved in the early conversations with us. And then he kind of handed off a lot of the, the diligence work on that acquisition to Matt Danner of iThemes. So I worked really closely with Matt through all of the, you know, dotting I's and crossing T's. I remember that process. I remember it sprung up fast. That means that I didn't really have a lot of visibility into how it happened, why it happened, and what it was like. So I wanted to bring Zach back into my life to find out more. Uh, in, in the most positive way possible, uh, the, the acquisition of the events calendar was kind of a divorce from Modern Tribe, right? They we were half the company and we were suddenly being split off and sold as a separate piece. Uh, so there was just a lot to untangle, you know, right down to my email address used to be Zach at tribe and suddenly it needed to be Zach at the events calendar.com. And that seems like a small thing, but it just shows how it, we were very integrated and we had to be divided out, separated as an asset. Um, we really didn't expect it to be, to come to fruition quite that quickly lightning fast. And Liquid Web was involved in every step of the way. After all, they were buying an open source software company. So what were they buying? That was something that was so that that was the perfect alignment for us because mm -hmm. we we weren't in a situation where we wanted to take a product, sell it to a new person and then just say, okay, you've got that now and we go on our merry way. But it was really okay, we have 50 human beings who are working on this project and we've got momentum and we want to, we want to maintain that. So finding a, finding a partner that, uh, that aligned with our vision of the business uh, and, and that direction that we were taking and our kind of, you know, maybe not every single thing that was on our roadmap, but generally agreed with kind of the direction we were pointed and, really just wanted to help us go faster. That was, that was what we were looking for. That might not be what every business that's looking to sell is looking for. Maybe they are looking to exit and you know, that changes the conversation, not in a bad way, but it, 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 you know, when you're having those initial conversations and trying to find 
who you're going to sell to, uh, that's a really important component is to know, are they aligned with you know, what I want to do with this business or where I see this business going, mm-hmm. um, which could be a complete exit. So in the case of the modern tribe partners, that was their interest. They wanted a clean break, a complete exit, uh, but they also wanted to make sure that the, uh, the, the people they were sending on that new journey uh, were, were going to be taken care of. Now, due diligence is a fun term that simply means you have to do your research and make sure that what you think you're buying is what you're buying. We do due diligence when we're looking at buying used cars, when we're buying homes, et cetera, et cetera, right? So what was the due diligence process like? What were those eyes that you had to dot? Everything. It was every component of how we ran our business and how how revenue flowed through our business, right? From you know, how, how do we find out who our prospective customers are? How do we bring them on board? How do we license? How do we distribute our licenses? Uh, you know, what's our, you know, how many lifetime licenses do we sell? Monthly licenses, annual license, you know, all those kinds of things. But then super detailed stuff, like we are selling open source software. Open source software is often made of other open source software components, what are the JavaScript libraries that you've got included in your product and what are their licenses? You know, do, are, do you have some commercial software component that's packaged in and you don't have a right to distribute? And so all of that, there's also things like in some cases you might have trademarks or patents or, or some like official intellectual property. That's a little bit rarer in the WordPress ecosystem in particular. We don't see that. And I haven't seen that much with some of the acquisitions I've been involved in. It's pretty rare to have those like trademarks or patents or any of that kind of thing in the WordPress space. But uh, obviously, that's a question we ask on a very, very long due diligence checklist. Was there a part of that process that made you nervous? It's, it's very scary. And honestly, in my case, was kind of lonely, uh, mm. you know, because I knew that I was going to be taking as many of my team as would follow me <laughs> along on a new adventure. Uh, but I couldn't talk to them about it, you know, cause at any point that could fall through and you, you can't talk about any of that until, you know, until you're sure you're sure that the buyer is going to go through with the deal. You're sure that you as the seller are, are actually going to, you know, sign the purchase agreement and, and take the payment. You know, that's, that is a, it's a very busy, there's lots of work, uh, you end up dropping a lot of things that you were doing previously because it takes a lot of time. So your colleagues are like, what? What's going on? Why is this person all of a sudden getting nothing done around here? Uh, mm. It's like, well, I'm working on this project that I can't tell any of you about. <laughs> so I'll say it, it's a little scary, a little lonely. Um, but in in my case, I had such a good partner in Matt Danner on the liquid website, who was very supportive every step of the way on that, on that deal. And in a lot of ways, I think that's, that's a model we follow with all the deals we're doing at liquid web. And it, I think it's really essential that you have a highly engaged buddy on the other side who can be, um, who could be your kind of your friend and your sounding board and can you can you establish that relationship with and you start to learn 
what's the culture of this place that I'm going and, and those kinds of things. It's worth noting, I participated in this acquisition too. I worked on Chris's team when it happened. I'm not at Liquid Web anymore, so I wanted to hear from Chris what the future plans at Liquid Web for acquisitions look like. My name is Chris Summa. I have been working with the internet since it started, and I had the opportunity to work through a lot of startups, build companies and sell them, and discovered the WordPress ecosystem in 05 and have been part of it for the last 16 years. I currently work as a VP of product over at a hosting company called Liquid Web and uh, get to interact with a lot of the commercial entities, the plugins uh, that are in the space as part of my day job. How many open source companies have you acquired so far? Are there plans to acquire more? What's going on with the thinking? You, you have to go back just a little bit to understand the scope of all of what's out there, right? So you have 28 million WordPress websites that are active, right? Of the 28 million, two thirds of them are on hosting companies where you can actually install plugins, right? Um, so that's 18 and a half million. Of the 18 and a half million, you, we can presume roughly about 60% of them have budget for premium plugins. And so that's about a mil 11 million sites. Of the 11 million sites, the average site has 30 plugins that are active. That's 332 million plugins that are active. But only about 5% of those are premium. So about 16.6 million premium deployed plugins. If the average of $99 a year is the license fee, that is a 1.6 billion with a B space per year. So when someone goes around asking a question like, well, how many open source plugins are out there or how many premium products are you know, worth buying, you're like, it's endless. As a hosting company that's looking, every, every company, whether you're a hosting company or another product company, whether you're trying to you know, pull a lot of companies together, the first thing you have to understand is the opportunities are endless. Um, it's a massive, massive playing space because there's so many websites that are using WordPress, because there's so many deployed plugins that you could go, should I get into this space? There continues to be competition. There continues to open up more opportunity. And, uh, and that means as a company for us, right, we have to have our own investment hypothesis. But more importantly, everybody who's looking has to know there's a ton of opportunity. out there. So that means that there are totally plans to acquire more, way more. There are definitely plans to acquire more. And it's not it's not, a, it's not a, a liquid web or a specific host, right? This isn't the trend that is reserved to the ecosystem of web publishing via WordPress. We're seeing more and more high-profile open source acquisitions come up. In 2019, IBM bought Red Hat. Red Hat makes cloud computing, storage, and automation and management software for the enterprise, and they open source all of their products. And perhaps most importantly, IBM bought them for $34 billion. That's billion with a B. And what we see as the benefit of an acquisition like that tends to be very similar to the benefit of plugins in this web publishing WordPress ecosystem. In something like 2008, 
the, the premium managed WordPress hosting showed up. And at the time, it was, we'll give you really good hosting for WordPress. But over the course of several years, it was, well, we'll give you um, enhanced hosting that is specifically shaped for WordPress, but now we're going to give you a couple more utilities and features. In 2019, I lived through something similar. The company that I co-owned with Josh, who you heard from in the second episode, was acquired. We were not acquired by a host. We were actually acquired by a competitor. But the process looked similar to what Zach was telling us about. With open source software acquisitions, you're not buying the code. So what are you buying? I think every host, for sure, is looking at acquiring, you know, strategic plugins, right? Like making a strategic choice about which to go after. And then non-hosts, right? Companies like Awesome Motive are, are collecting additional plugins that they believe they can monetize and drive growth. So I think everybody at this point who has the wherewithal is saying, this is a very interesting economic space and, and let's, let's go buy some companies. Can you tell us about what motivates a company to buy another open source company? Like what puts a company on your radar and you're like, oh, look at that. I think there's at least three things that drive the, like, we should, we should look closer. Is the company growing? Nobody wants to buy a company that's in their third year of decline. Okay, growth, check. You know, you have to have, again, every company has their own investment hypothesis, but you have to have a, a particular reason to say it's better to buy versus build, especially in an open source dynamic where you could just go, let me fork. You have to have a really good reason if it's doing neg you know, multiple years of negative growth. Factor number two is, is it strategic, right? Just because you can buy a company doesn't mean, like most people don't realize buying a company costs money. And I don't mean the cost that you're paying to the founder or owner of the other business. I mean, there is legal costs. There are uh, internal costs related to your finance team and what they have to spend time doing. There is a, a, a cost in terms of, you know, if I want to pitch to my boss or to our board that we buy a company, there is reputational cost, right? There is uh, time and effort cost, right? Just internal work, right? So you're not going to go through all of that internal cost and overhead to buy a company that you don't think is useful to you, is all that interesting, right? Is like, oh, that was on my priority list, but it was number 38. That's, that's not what you're going to do. So the second part is, is it strategic? Does it fulfill a key part of what you need to do and it will help you accelerate what you're doing in the market? As a product strategist, for me, the third is, do I believe that I can do something here to, you know, or that we as an organization can do something here to make it generate more money. Every founder, every owner of a business that sells feels like this is, you know, when they finally make the sale, right? They're like, I feel like this is a good trade-off. You get to this point where a company goes, I think I've done as much as I can, or I think I've gotten it to where I can, but I think with them, we can go further, right? When you're saying, oh, I'm, I'm going to trade total ownership of potentially an apex of where I've gone for partial ownership of essentially a greater lift, that becomes interesting to the founder. So what you're looking for is a win-win. You, so you said two things that I want to dig into. The one that caught my attention first was 
the response of the open source community, both the people who contribute and the people who have given financial support to the company. They freak out. The other part I want to dig into is IP, but first I want to dig into community. What happens with that and how do you manage that as an acquirer? Every time any company buys someone else, there's going to be a reaction that is related to the brand equity of the buyer. Some buyers are, are painted as, ooh, that's interesting. Other buyers, you go, oh, they're going to kill the company. And there, are, there, are, there is a history where hosting companies have bought a company and then you've never heard from them again, right? So, um, you know, you get painted by the brush that is part of the ecosystem. And um, it is not the same as a large company acquiring a SaaS company that is not in the WordPress community, right? Like, it's a whole different ballgame because the WordPress community is a community and they have memory. And so they're like, well, what about, remember when this got bought? Remember when this got bought? Remember when that? So you're in a different context and some people will immediately jump to, well, time to go look for a replacement now that a hosting company's bought it. And we see it, right? It shows up in Facebook groups. It shows up on, on Twitter. Others are like, ooh, I'm excited for this because I'm, I was a customer of another product that got bought by Liquid Web and everything went up into the right. Like this was great for us. So like we got a lot of benefit. And so some people get excited, other people get frustrated. Most everybody just goes, okay, cool. I hope it worked out for the founders. And then they just kind of move on. The other bit that caught my attention was their IP. And I think that when we look at a plugin company, some people out there, maybe the proprietary software skeptics are going to say, well, what's the IP? And I'm kind of curious about, well, first of all, what is the IP, right? But then also, what do we say to the skeptics? In my, in my earlier transactions, right, the companies that I bought years and years ago, and when I sold companies, right, it was IP as in the code. The mm -hmm. code we wrote was the intellectual property. And so we started equating those two things. Like, okay, intellectual property is code and anything else isn't. And you go, that's not exactly true. Um, so in the open source world, you're not buying the code, right? Because the code is out there. It's available. And some people will say, well, then why buy the company? You can just fork the code and do whatever you want. Well, yes and no. You could fork the code. No question about it. That's, that's permissible. And people will talk about the right way and the wrong way. And there is no right and wrong way. It Fundamentally, you can copy the code because that's what open source, the, the GPL, the licensing is. So if you're not buying the intellectual property, then what are you buying? Well, you are often buying a team and that team can do incredible things. Harvard, a professor at Harvard uh, some 10 years ago did research. He did it with uh, stock traders. And so what would happen is after a couple of years, you'd have a star who's selling something, right? Oil futures. And that star is incredible. So that star would go from a boutique investment firm to say Merrill Lynch, right? And they'd move them over. And all of, now, to be clear, these are all people at peak performance, right? They're the winners in their boutiques. They're the winners across a space. And they move over to a big, you know, firm and yet massive underperformance for the next five years. Not just one year, massive underperformance for five years. And you go, why? Why did this star, right, this high flyer, not succeed somewhere else. And it turns out it's not often just a single person who makes success happen. 
It is an entire team. It is a group of people who work together. And when you take the star, the one that's getting all the credit, and you move them to another team and they don't have the same rapport with the team, and of course they're leading someone who was supposedly up for that same job, and they're, they don't know the policies and procedures of how that team works and whatever else, they don't perform well. So when you buy a company, part of what you're buying is a team. And you're saying, yes, it's this software, but also it's this group of people and they know this space and they know each other and they know how to produce and they know how to support their customer base. You're buying, that's why I want the whole team. So when you buy a company, you're buying a different kind of intellectual product because you're buying how a team works and how that team produces content, produces product, produces add-ons, produces campaigns, produces marketing. That's all IP as well, right? And they know how to do it together. Um, and they know their markets, right? They know their markets. I could fork the code base and say, look, I have the same code base, but if I don't know that market, my first landing page is going to miss all the marks. The, you know, the language is going to be wrong. The copy is going to be wrong. I won't convert. And then having the code won't do me jack. Yeah. With all the companies that you've acquired so far, have you found that those team dynamics are vastly different? Yeah. One of the things that happens when we're you know, digging into a company before we do the final uh, close is that we're doing due diligence. And one of our particular areas where we do due diligence is figuring out what is it that you're really good at? What do you know? And we know that before we do the deal. So by the time the deal's done, we're able to immediately on day one say, hey, by the way, owner over here, I want you to have a conversation with owner over there and tell them how you're doing this. And then owner over there is like, that's amazing. And you're like, yeah, see, we're all happy. We're starting, we're starting at, you know, going zero to 60 on day one. So the next part I wanted to ask about was the skeptics, right? Surely you could talk to someone, but if they're outside of the ecosystem, they're going to push back and say, well, I don't know what they would say, but what would you say to someone like that that says, well, still, if I don't have the code, what's the point? Yeah. So, so the skeptics, the normal thing a skeptic will say is, yes, but even if you buy that company and you spend millions of dollars, can't I just copy your code? And you go, yeah. Well, then I can just be your competitor. Yeah. Well, then I can just destroy your revenue. N no. No, you can say that you can copy the code and you can say that you will be a competitor. Those are honest and factual statements, but that doesn't equal you can destroy what I'm doing. And I'll give you the prime example, right? And I, and I would to a skeptic. Like Gravity Forms has been out forever. Optin Monster has been out forever. These are two premium products. These premium products have been two of the most copied, duplicated, and uh, placed, just straight code base, placed on... Uh, uh, torrents and everything else for people to go cracked, go buy, buy your own version, right? Get your own version for free, which is silly because these are open source plugins. You could just pay one-time fee and pull the code down and then figure out what you're going to do. And you could say, I don't want to buy your support. I just want to have the code and go from there. They're still high functioning businesses generating millions of dollars a year. And what normally happens is folks like Gravity Forms and, and Optimonster use it as lead gen. Great. You want to have an unlicensed copy of the code when it finally doesn't work for you and you need help, call us. We'll sell you a real deal and thank you so much and moving on, right? Like we know how this world works. 
let me give you a touch of personal experience here. Having been involved in this WordPress plugin ecosystem and having had one of the premium plugins that Chris is talking about and zoning in on, yeah, that happened to us. We ended up with some of our plugins on a nullifying club and things like that. And I gotta tell you, it definitely didn't destroy Caldera forms. So what Chris is talking about here is real. One might even say that I could have sent them a takedown notice or something like that, and I could have, and we could have paid our general counsel for that. But the reality is that it didn't really affect us at all. There was one last thing I wanted to get from Chris, and that was the other perspective. What should companies looking to be acquired and building open source software and maintaining open source communities do to be attractive. What about the owners of open source software companies? I think a lot of them, even more, are now starting to crop up who have the goal of being acquired. And that's probably unusual, right? I think that used to be more the goal of SaaS companies and things like that. What advice would you have for those owners that have that goal? So we don't have enough time for all the advice that I have. <laughs> um, I've been coaching uh, commercial plugin owners for years. And um, there's, there's a whole bunch of things that, I, there's always gonna be two kinds of people. Person who says, I wanna build this just cause I wanna build it and I don't have any plans to sell it. And people who are like, I wanna build something and hopefully I build something that I could sell. So the first group, you're like, I, I can't even help you cause you don't want the help. You just want to build something and have fun with it. So go have fun with it. But you will likely um, lay out for yourself several landmines that you may then step on on your own and uh, explode this whole thing because you were having fun and you didn't think about it with any other perspective. And I can't help you with that because you don't want the help. But the ones over here who are like, I would like to build something. And, and if it goes right, maybe one day sell it. And you go, okay, great. Then let's talk about all your inclinations and how they're all not going to serve you. Then you go, wait, what? You go, you have defaults, right? You have defaults, and those defaults aren't always in your best interest, right? Um, a lot of times what happens is, well, I, this is my side hustle, so I don't need to charge a lot of money for it. Defining your pricing based on how much money you need is a classic mistake. That's not how you do it. You want to price it at the way in which you understand the market and demand and value, you wanna figure out all that equation, competition, to figure out where your pricing is. When you don't evaluate pricing that way and you evaluate pricing just on, well, you know what? I tend to sell about 100 copies a month and here's what I need, I need a thousand bucks and so I'll sell it for 10 bucks. You go, no, because now by the time someone comes to acquire you, you've anchored the entire community to say, my product's only worth 10 bucks. Now the acquirer can't suddenly go, well, why is it only 10 when other people are doing it at 40 or 50? Well, I just didn't need the money. Well, what does that have to do with anything, right? I'm buying a company. I don't want to be anchored to your price point. So, um, so how you price the product ought to be intelligent. And, and here's the sad part. Plug-in owners predominantly are developers and they don't think about pricing at all. Like if you said, hey, how many hours? You know this, you used to own a plugin. If I said, how many hours did you spend 
evaluating your pricing algorithm. I guarantee you that you and your co-founder spent less than 40 hours. In most companies, it's less than 10 hours. Oh, what about this? Oh, I like this. Here, let's open up a couple websites. Oh, I like this. Okay, here we go. Let's do this. And then we're good. And then once you are there, then when you go to do an add-on, you go to do something else, it's 15 minutes here. It's 20 minutes there. You literally spent 10 hours, but you spent thousands of hours writing code. It's, it's insane. It's ridiculous. So I tell people, oh man, if you haven't spent 20 to 40 hours actually doing work on pricing, actually thinking through different models, different customers, different approaches, different way. Like if you haven't done the work, we got work to do, right? And your default, again, betrays you because your default's like, no, no, no. You know what's important is I got to write the code. No, you don't have to write the code, right? What you have to do is figure out what segment of the market are you going for and what segment is available and what segments aren't available because other products are anchored in those segments and which segments can you slide into if you add more features later and how much should you pay to get into those segments? How much should you spend in development and how much should you charge to recoup that development plus the margin you want? All of that is thinking about pricing more than it is thinking about writing code. Another mistake, right? Again, most plugin owners are developers. So they, they go to write their, their page, right? Let's say they're not fortunate enough to know Christy. So they, they're like, I'll just do it myself. And then they write it. And you read it and you go, hey, let me guess. A developer wrote this. And they're like, yeah, how'd you know? Uh, because you wrote about every integration and you showed screenshots of all the hooks and you wrote about filters and you're, and you're like, are you only selling this to a developer? That's, that, that's not a model for building software company, right? Building a software product. You need to understand who your targets are, what they are struggling with, what the competitors are missing and finding a way into that and telling that story which means you tell the story from the outside in, not from the inside out. The third mistake, and I'll just leave it with just three. The third mistake is when it comes to the actual code you write, the actual features you build. You build more often than not, you build what you want to build. You build what excites you. You build what is interesting to you. And it may or may not have anything to do with what customers need or want. Not to say that, you know, you're like, oh, uh, you know, Someone wants an affiliate plugin, so I should do these three features. But you're driving it off what you want to do and what your perspective is and what you've heard instead of um, hearing what the pain points are and using those pains to define what features you build and bring it to market. If you build what you want to build, marketing is a separate effort because you first built it and now you go ask your friend to say, hey, how do I market this? And someone has to come up with, well, okay, let's go figure out how to do it. But if you start by understanding the market, their pain, and how you solve it, by the time you finish building, your marketing is also done because your stories, the narrative was part of your feature development. In this season, Joe Howard told us about the bootstrapper community. And I thought that was a very important thing to highlight. More and more bootstrappers and people interested in that indie hacking method of building, growing, and selling a software company are starting to see that there's a lot of value in building something open source. Companies like Liquid Web, and again, companies way, way bigger, are 
looking into open source, they're fully committing, and they're buying. From all sides, we have to look at what makes a successful acquisition. How can a company hoping to be acquired get acquired? How can the stakeholders, the investors involved and interested in that return, make sure that the open source software company succeeds? And once an open source company is acquired, maybe by you, how do you make sure that it continues to succeed and adds value to that bottom line? It's a conversation that I'm having more and more. Let's look towards the future. Can you tell people where to find you? Absolutely. Uh, I write a daily blog over at chrislemma.com and uh, you can find me there for sure. I also am active on Twitter at at Chris Lemma. Uh, I am available on YouTube at uh, Mr. Chris Lemma. And uh, of course, uh, you can find me at uh, WordPress and, and WordPress community-like events. Thank you for listening. Learn how to support the Open Source Economist at opensourceeconomist.com. Even a monthly $5 contribution helps and gets you access to full, unedited interviews with our guests. This podcast was edited by Ali Nimmons. Thank you to Alice Young for creating our designs and to Chris Lemma for supporting our publishing costs. And of course, thank you to our individual contributors for helping us create this podcast. Have questions or feedback? Send them to email at christychirinos.com.